It's cool. New England Take. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted, nhtalkradio.com. To get the back episodes of the show, and be sure to follow New England Take on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, follow my photography if you feel like following New England Take over on Instagram, too. There's no uh, show content over there, but I might as well plug my Instagram while I'm at it. Excited to be joined today by Michael Doobie. He's a visiting assistant professor of law over at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. Great guy. I've known him for a couple of years. Welcome to the show. A couple years is, is putting it live. I've known you for quite some time, and it's really great to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. And for those of you listening on the radio, he's shilling as hard as he possibly can for UNH. He's got the UNH hoodie. He's got the fancy drone virtual background. They got what's, What is Megan giving you over there? It's, it's, it's all in tribute to you, AJ. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Another thing for those who are regular listeners, I worked at the university for 12 years and I, I, I left on, on the, at the uh, beginning of the month to, to work somewhere else. So that's what he references there. But speaking of my new employment, I now work at the New Hampshire Insurance Department. So I'm on all sorts of mailing lists for all sorts of other things than law. Uh, but then I happened upon this article by the Information Insur- Insurance Information Institute, known as III, uh, talking about... Uh, the article is uh, what is third-party litigation funding and how does it affect insurance pricing and affordability on on the face of it it sounds like a horribly boring topic but when you when you actually consider the implications and the case history with something like this it's huge I I mean generally speaking when you're talking about third-party funding which is outside individuals paying for the the plaintiff or the defense or something in a lawsuit is this something that's basically happened forever is this the extent of it really expanded over the last 20 or 30 years yeah i mean this is something that's been tried forever certainly you can go back to the middle ages and uh find court opinions and find scholarships such as it was on um, this practice, it used to be called champerty in the old days, and now it's evolved into something called litigation funding. Um, it really exploded, as you allude to, AJ, in the last 20 or 30 years when some entrepreneurs you know, decided sort of to test the waters and see whether or not this was something that courts were going to allow. And courts, by and large, have allowed it, and it's very quietly or maybe not so quietly uh, transform the way litigation happens in the United States, at least to some some extent. I, I mean, is this partially? See, I can think of two big things that that may have spawned this. One is the internet and social media and everything, which we'll dive into a couple cases specifically that most likely, <clears throat> which is now everyone has a voice, so you're just prone to more things getting shared or put out there. And two, maybe I mean, kind of along the internet lines again is patents trademarks and copyrights are just like globalization's a thing and you're talking post-world war ii especially it's really expanded probably a lot more than was humanly possible before that time uh, like are those t- t- the two big buckets or are there other ones that are fairly common yeah you know i mean that's that's a really interesting question i you know, I think that what, what has really sort of spawned this proliferation, and, and this does tie in with the themes that you correctly raise, is really this feeling that folks should have a voice via the court system. This is something that I talk with my first year civil procedure students about, and this is something that a room full of lawyers with you know 500 years of practice experience between them talk about you know, on a day-to-day basis, which is how do we get a meritorious claim before a court? How do we advance 
a client's voice in court. And look, lawyers are expensive, litigation is expensive. And so the notion of not having meritorious cases die on the vine for want of funding is really, you know, the main thing that's spurring this on. And, and you're right, certainly, you know, litigation in the year 2022 is certainly, as it was previously, is certainly about having a voice, about telling a story, about bringing the truth to the fore. You know, many might say, cynics might argue uh, otherwise. But so, yeah, I, I mean, I think that a lot of this is, is is new and a lot of it you know deals with these universal questions these sort of age-old questions of how do i pursue justice when justice is expensive yeah and it it kind of maybe there's another bucket there that i i don't know how common necessarily was before the civil rights movement versus post-civil rights movement but the the concept of equal access to justice is like the uh the the key phrase that I heard repeatedly over my tenure over at UNH for communications and such, and hearing Chief Ju former Chief Justice of New Hampshire Supreme Court John Broderick, that was a big cornerstone of what he did in addition to mental health awareness. Uh, like this is kind of a way for people that maybe didn't have access to decent lawyers outside of the pro bono side of the house to actually be able to have a proper case brought up. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, look, you know, we take for granted today contingency fee agreements. But the truth is that contingency fee agreements were of questionable legality until some decades ago. And, you know, attorney advertising was of questionable legality until the Supreme Court addressed that and, and put it to bed in the 1970s and blessed it uh, on First Amendment grounds. And so a lot of the things that we take for granted now, um, such as the ability to get into court due to contingency fees, the abilities of attorneys to advertise and other such things, you know, really have developed in in recent times. And, you know, so I, I think that this is sort of the latest thing that's developing. And it's certainly I don't want to minimize your point in any way. It certainly does have at its heart the notion of, again, cases, uh, really not only cases getting to get into court, but but plaintiffs not needing to settle those cases on the cheap, so to speak. You know, I, I think one of the main arguments advanced in favor of these litigation funding companies, or at least uh, in favor of litigation funding in general, is that previously, even if an attorney would represent a client on a contingency fee basis, that attorney might not have the resources to really shepherd the case through to, to a conclusion. And there was really only one thing that a client could do in that instance, which was to settle on the cheap. That is to say, to settle the case for less than the fair value of the claim. And litigation funding is sort of, it can work as a supplement to contingency fee agreements, it can work as an alternative. But the idea here is that it allows cases not only to be brought, as contingency fee agreements certainly do, but to thrive and to thrive through the discovery process and potentially to go to trial if that's what it takes for a justice to be achieved. Um, obviously, there are critics who say that you know litigation funding has led us down a primrose path and, and that's not actually what's happening. But uh, you know, in theory, this is certainly part of that sort of the solution to the very vexing question of access to justice. I think the most interesting aspect of this topic is ethics and the way that plays into where is the line here? Like the, the, the like the most common thing example of a case I can think of where where this sort of concept really came to light was back when I was 
good God, when did I can't remember what year that was. It was around 2010 or so. It was the Gawker case with uh, Hulk Hogan right. <laughs> as uh, suing Gawker and primarily being funded by Peter. It was Peter Thiel, right? Yeah, it was. It was I Peter believe Thiel. so. Yeah, and he, he Gawker upset Peter Thiel previously for outing him as gay. The whole ethics around that. Totally other thing we're not going to dive into right now because it's it's a it, that was a very messy situation generally speaking that I think he sued and lost ultimately and he held a grudge and proceeded to fund Hulk Hogan suing Gawker basically ten million dollars yeah, yeah out of business like Univision ended up buying them I remember as someone who's in the media I'm like why the hell is Univision buying Gawker it's like oh it's because it, it's a IP that's very useful and is still around ultimately nowadays. It took a long time, but Gawker and Gizmodo and such are still floating around. Um, I, I mean, the the ethical consideration of someone like Peter Thiel, who has no direct connection to this case except for the fact he hates Gawker, is is huge. I, I mean, when when you have law students bring up this sort of thing and how they want to handle cases, like what do you? I don't even know how, where you begin on that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and the other thing that was so interesting about that case was that it was unknown for quite some time that there was any litigation funding going on. And then I believe, if I recall the facts of the case correctly, there was a rumor or some rumors, maybe some reporting that there was some rich individual who was bankrolling or financing Hulk Hogan's case against Gawker. And then ultimately, uh, a major outlet, maybe it was the New York Times, broke the story that it was Peter Thiel that was doing the funding and it was never very clear whether he was doing so with the in, with the uh intention of obtaining any sort of portion of the proceeds or whether in fact it was solely based upon this this grudge that he uh held against uh, Gawker but uh you know as a result of that uh one of the ways that at least some courts have tried to address this ethical issue is and again this goes to an, an issue of civil procedure is to require parties to disclose at the outset of a case whether or not they are being funded by any as you correctly put it disinterested third party and then to also provide the details of that funding such as whether or not that third party might have a seat at the table in terms of making any sort of settlement decisions which they you know you know may or may not but uh, you know, the District of New Jersey, which is a federal court, was, I believe, the first federal court to actually require every party at the outside at the outset of a case that's receiving such funding to disclose it. And I know other state courts have looked at and in certain cases uh, considered implementing that. There is some federal legislation uh, on this topic that hasn't really gone anywhere, but but might as this issue is is covered more and more. And yeah, I think that that is that is a very, very interesting ethical issue within all of this, which is, if there's nothing wrong with this, then why not disclose it? And on the, the other, another more civil rights, ultimately, when it comes to this, is the whole nature of how the ACLU operates. I, I mean, they, they have their own funders that contribute to, to their operation at the state level or the federal level. Um, they only take cases that they feel they they have a role in with their mission as a nonprofit organization and people don't tend to think of the, the the implications of that like they they have their own way of thinking about things also and their funders are only going to continue funding them if they 
in theory, pursue certain sorts of cases. And we can see the kind of shift politically that organization from decade to decade moves a, moves a lot one way or another. But uh, we all tend to think of groups like that as a positive, but still it's a same ethical decision. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, across the political spectrum, there are groups that certainly represent uh, folks, plaintiffs and defendants, uh, that uh, whose cases are philosophically aligned with their views. Um, again, you see that on, on both ends of the political spectrum. Recently, I believe the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which came yeah. before the Supreme Court, uh, that was a case obviously involving the issue of whether a uh, wedding cake baker, I believe in the state of Colorado, uh, whether their free expression rights were being uh, tramped, trampled upon by uh, the state and requiring them to serve a gay couple. And I believe that the uh, plaintiff in that case was represented by, uh, the, the baker, should I say, was represented by an organization. Uh, there's a 303 creative case, which is currently before the Supreme Court, uh, involving the question of whether a website designer uh, should be compelled to design websites for gay and lesbian couples. It, like um, and with and, those you know, I, with those cases, it's both sides also. It's not just one side is, is having this sort of big funding. Like both sides of these are very much outside groups are are involved with how yeah. this case is happening. Yeah, and I think this is what we think about as sort of more traditional litigation funding in terms of legal defense funds or organizations that bring uh, test cases on on behalf of certain uh, plaintiffs whose views align with with the organization. So you're you're right to point out that. You know, when we think about litigation funding, it's not just a company that is, you know, providing five million dollars to XYZ Corporation to file a breach of contract case. There's Peter Thiel funding the Gawker case. There's obviously legal aid organizations. And certainly there are, you know, there are plaintiffs who need money to get to the point where their case is going to be settled. They might otherwise be happy with the contingency fee arrangement that they have with their clients. I'm talking mainly, of course, about personal injury actions and the like. They may be perfectly happy with the contingency fee arrangement that they have with their clients. I'm sorry, with their attorneys. But at the same time, they simply need some money to stave off foreclosure, to stave off an eviction, uh, to feed their children. You know, for perfectly uh, rational reasons to seek this money. And, And in that case, they often, you know, can seek litigation financing. Um, you know, there are obviously, uh, academics and others who say, well, let, let's look at the amount that ultimately is owed to those financiers. It often is a significant portion of what they ultimately recover. And, and they, you know, obviously there are ethical questions raised there as well. Um, I don't have any easy answers to those except to say that they're, they're certainly raised in the context of this discussion. Do you have any examples of where this sort of funding is either is straight up illegal or has been a problem in the past where uh, outside from just public outrage, which is uh, the low hanging fruit discussion of it. But literally there there was a line cross where it was seen as illegal on the civil or criminal side of the house. Yeah, well, you know, you know, I hope it goes without saying that obviously nothing that I'm, every every attorney feels compelled to say this and nothing that I'm saying today is legal advice or anything of the sort. Obviously, if you have legal questions, you could you should consult with an attorney who is licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. I will say that here in New Hampshire, before answering your question directly, here in New Hampshire, the view, at least among, you know, many scholars is that, you know, this has been blessed by the New Hampshire courts for some time, you know, we're the live free or die state. And so New Hampshire hasn't really had a problem with this concept of champerty for some time. There's never been a case to the best of my knowledge directly 
confronting in New Hampshire whether or not litigation financing is okay or whether or not there could be some sort of defense to a contract involving litigation financing. That I don't believe that that issue has been directly addressed, but at the same time, uh, New Hampshire courts have generally appeared pretty, uh, you know, short of short of a party outright selling their claim and letting somebody else pursue it. The New Hampshire courts have been largely uh, largely in favor of allowing these arrangements to stand, of these arrangements not violating public policy. And a number a number of other states, uh, Minnesota, I think, is a great recent example, uh, have blessed these arrangements as well. You know, states that previously held such contracts to be illegal. Um, but there are still some states that don't necessarily look as favorably upon litigation financing. Uh, Pennsylvania immediately comes to mind in terms of the closest state to us geographically of a state that has not gone as far as other states in making it absolutely clear that litigation financing is is uh, you know is okay. Um, you know, obviously, it could be challenged in a variety of different contexts. And you know, Pennsylvania is a state where you know I think you know merits some investigation were someone to engage in that transaction perhaps more than other states but you know obviously again these companies do their own research and people in, engaging in these contracts engage counsel to do the research but i think that there are you know despite the fact that litigation financing is the hot new thing in terms of um you know in terms of the world of litigation and funding it versus more traditional recourse loans let's say uh, yeah, I think there are still states, you know, that that, you know, look at litigation financing with a bit of a jaundiced eye. Uh, but here here in New England, I don't know that I've seen any any state court come out very directly against it, at least to the best of my knowledge. So about a minute and a half left. I mean, uh, do you think there's a risk, especially as more and more people consider this as a possibility Will this have a chilling effect, do you think, on so many – there's a million ways to consider the chilling effect. Like, chilling effect. Talk yeah, about it. Right. You, you are ready for law school, by the way. I, I look forward to seeing you next year. Uh, no, I, I – I, look, people people in favor of litigation funding says that it has just the opposite, that it gets, uh, it gets people in the court. It gets def potential defendants to be careful because they know that – plaintiffs are going to be funded they're going to have the resources to obtain a fair value for their injuries um that you know and and certainly so i know I, I think it's not going to have a chilling effect i think if anything uh it's going to if, if not increase litigation perhaps decrease the amount of cases or number of cases that settle i don't know that this has been studied empirically yet at this point but but certainly that that is a uh potential uh, you know, given given the proliferation of uh, litigation funding. But I, I think if it does have a chilling effect, this may be what finally is something we haven't gotten to touch on, but I'm glad I have this quick opportunity, finally leads to some sort of regulation. This is a largely, you know, a largely unregulated field. And it'll be very interesting to see whether or not, as so often happens, some event occurs that causes people to really take notice and suddenly it's a regulated industry. And that is certainly, you know, a chilling effect on litigation is certainly one possibility. 
Yeah, and that's been an interesting thing as I as I've delved into various cases is do you want to open that can of worms? And you probably don't because it's gonna be very messy because there's so many different angles that can be addressed on something like this and it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward with such things. But excited to be joined today. Thank you so much with you, uh Professor Michael Doobie of UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. He's a visiting professor there this year and uh he's a great addition to that team. Law.unh.edu if you want to learn more about them and apply, please apply. We need that law school open in the States. The only one here. Thanks so much for joining me, Michael. Thanks so much, AJ. It's the New England Take. I'm your host, AJ Kierce at nhtalkradio.com to get the podcast version of the show, New England Take, and all your favorite social media platforms and podcast services. I'm your host, AJ Kierce.